We firmly believe in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. This is an opportunity to lay a legal framework for cooperation, for respect, for human rights, for dignity, really basic things, but it lays a really powerful foundation. And I think that in and of itself is vitally important. That's Jagmeet Singh, leader of the Federal New Democratic Party, and is our guest on the Akamemak podcast. Tanse, Tawau, and welcome to the Akamemak podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemak is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, our guest is Jagmeet Singh. Since 2017, he has been the leader of the Federal New Democratic Party and is the Member of Parliament for Burnaby South. From 2011 to 2017, he served as an MPP in the Ontario Legislature and before entering politics, Mr. Singh was a criminal defence lawyer in Toronto. So, Mr. Jagmeet Singh, a very big welcome to our Akamemak podcast. Thank you, thank you, Tanse Miigwech. It's an honour to be here and honour to spend some time with you and answer your questions and have a good chat. Yeah. So, first thing right off, Jagmeet, is uh, how are you? How are you dealing with this pandemic that's all around us with you and your mm-hmm. family? How are you keeping? How are you keeping balance mentally, emotional, spiritual, physically? I got to say, I'm, I'm worried about people. So that's on my mind a lot. I'm worried about the impact it has on so many families and so many communities. I think a lot about people that are most vulnerable and people that are very isolated and don't have access to good health care. I think about Indigenous people a lot. So that keeps me wor- worried. But I, I got to say, I'm really lucky and fortunate. Uh, I'm, I've been healthy. My family's healthy. And I've been able to spend a lot of time in, in the quarantine or in the, in the pandemic with uh, with my loved ones, but also I cook a lot, so I love cooking. Mm-hmm. I meditate a lot, so that keeps me grounded. I work out and spend time outdoors every day, and those, those are some of my daily practices, cooking, eating healthy, meditating, working out, reading, uh, listening to music. So I do lots of things to, to fill up my positivity tank so I can take on the day. No, that's awesome. That's a good way to keep balanced, uh, everything that you're doing. Now, you've been involved in federal politics, and it's all about public service, and you've been at the provincial level in Ontario, and now you're the leader of the NDP federal party here in Canada. What got you interested in politics in the first place, in public service, public life? Uh, a pretty complicated journey to get here. It wasn't something I really imagined. I was, a lot of my inspiration came from my mom, and this idea of us all being connected. She always teach me this, this philosophy, this idea that we're all one, we're all connected. And a lot of my my beliefs and conviction and fairness and justice come from this idea that we're all connected, we're all one. So that would be a foundation. The actual practical answer, National Chief, it's uh, my brother made me do it, if I, if I can be really <laughs> blunt with you. <laughs> my brother, my brother Singh, made, your older yeah. brother or younger brother? He's my younger brother. Okay. So my brother, Gratan Singh, and a good friend, Amneed Singh, they both basically really tried to convince me, and it took them a while. And what convinced me at the end of the day was I was an activist, uh, putting pressure on on different elected officials to make the right decision. So I didn't want to be an elected official. I just wanted to put pressure to get action, to see things happen. But they convinced me that we could do a lot of good if we were elected, representing a broader community, a city, fighting for the province, fighting for the country. 
And two things kind of made me make the decision. One was as a lawyer, I helped out one client at a time. And the argument of how do we help more people at a time? That was pretty compelling. And then my my brother reminded me this idea that we had gone through lots of ups and downs as a family. We lost our home. My dad was in a lot of difficulty financially. And so we didn't have a lot of money and things were tough. And we had just become more stable. So he saw I was comfortable now that I was a lawyer helping with the community and, and human rights issues on the side doing my legal practice. He said, my mom always told us that it's not enough to just survive, that once we're doing well, we have to thrive. And thriving, as our mom taught us, was to give back to the people around us. And so it's not Mm. enough to just think about a career and be stable, but how do we give back to the maximum? So that kind of persuaded me to make that decision, like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll go down this politics route. So I did it a little bit reluctantly, but it turned out to be an incredible journey. I'm so thankful I get to fight for people. I've made this uh, mark on the on the on the voice for people that were able to make a, a difference in people's lives, and also somehow I get paid doing it. So I'm I'm really lucky and thankful for this journey. That's awesome. So you were at the provincial level for for six years in Ontario, and what was the thinking to say, okay, this is provincial. I think we got to do this bigger to the national. How what was the thought process when you went from the MPP to, to an MP? Well, again, this is very interesting because I was very happy where I was. I was very comfortable in, in Ontario. I liked the work I did, family, everyone is in the GTA, so it made sense for me to stay there. And then again, a lot of really kind people were putting this idea that I could I could bring more people together at the national level. There's a lot of people that don't feel like they belong. There's a lot of people that feel like their voice doesn't matter. Seeing me at that level as a national leader would inspire a whole generation of new new activists and people to get mm-hmm. involved in politics and to feel that they could achieve what they want. So that was compelling. Uh, a lot of people that are far smarter than I am and gave me lots of motivation and inspiration and said, hey, you should do this. And so again, it took a while and it was a slow journey. You know, People started putting out the idea. Lots of folks started trying to convince me. And I was eventually sold on the idea that that at the national level, we could take the fight for people that we were doing, eventually bring it across the country. And we could also inspire a lot of people. I felt like our team was like, we could inspire a lot of people and do politics differently at the federal level. So mm. I, I was convinced by lots of great loving people that encouraged me. And you know this, uh, National Chief, that you can never achieve really big things unless you've got people around you that, that believe in it. So I was motivated by them, encouraged by them, and then took the plunge. So expanding the scope, expanding your reach, expanding your impact and inspiration for a lot of people. Exactly. That's a good message. That's a good message. In Canada, uh, and I'm First Nations, and I'm Cree, I'm from Little Black Bear, you know, and uh, we're obviously of color, both you and myself. And there's this thing called discrimination and racism in Canada. And we can, we've seen examples. Like I've seen examples, you've seen examples our listeners will, will know of things that I'm going to talk about. For example, uh, Joyce Echequan, you know, dying in the healthcare system mm-hmm. in Quebec. Um, the, the, the racist uh, games between the doctors and nurses in British Columbia and the healthcare system there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the healthcare system. Then we look at the justice system. And the number is like we're 5% of Canada's population as First Nations people, but the jails are full of uh, both First Nations men and women. 30% for men. I think it's closer to 40 for women. Um the, the police, mm-hmm. the excessive use of force by police from Chief Alan Adam, 
through the RCMP and lack of service from the RCMP with the Mi'kmaq fishers to the killing of Rodney Lee. Like the list goes on and on in the healthcare system, in the justice system, in the policing system. So we see that. And you're a leader of the NDP party. Like, what do you think can and should be done to address those things? Well, it saddens me and it makes me angry when I see this injustice. Like when I see our fellow human being be treated as subhuman just because of who they are. It is it is disgusting. And and National Chief, you're right, this is this is all too common. We see it everywhere. It's not limited to one part of the country. Everywhere in our country there is systemic racism. And it impacts some of the most vulnerable people. We know the impact is real on indigenous people, on, on racialized people. And and first I think is to unequivocally call it out and say that it is there. There's no question about it in our justice system, in our healthcare, in our education, in, in employment, in, in all aspects, it is there. It is there and it is real. So once we identify it, there's a couple of things we can do. We at the policing level, there is immediate steps that we can that can be taken, uh, immediately banning racial profiling. It happens regularly. Indigenous people are singled out just because they're indigenous. Now, people might say the charter precludes this, but it's only when we expressly prohibit it that we can actually stop the behavior. At the Ontario level, we fought, led the fight to ban carding, and we went pretty far along the way. It didn't go all the way, but what we got done, the changes made, actually stopped a lot of the cases of, of discrimination where people were being stopped for no reason. Uh, sometimes you'll have some police chiefs that push back, and in this case, they did. But uh, we know that it is not good policing to stop people just because of who they are. It actually makes people less safe. We need to use resources where there are real and urgent threats instead of a blanket approach to anyone who looks a certain way. It's actually not good policing. It's not safe. And it means that the real threats are ignored because of systemic racism. And we saw that in the States. You know, a really painful example, systemic racism meant that people ignored white supremacists and extreme right-wing groups that were very open about their threats because of systemic racism in the states and their policing and their security forces, the real and imminent threats were ignored and it put lives at risk. It meant that people lost their life and it meant that there was extreme violence. So it's, it's a real thing. I think at policing, we can do that. We also need to look at the approach of policing. If someone is going through a healthcare crisis, someone need, needs a wellness check or someone needs a mental health intervention. Uh, we saw this in the Atlantic Canada, where a wellness check resulted in, again, the killing of an Indigenous woman. There is no justification for that. And so when people are in a healthcare crisis, we need a healthcare response. And our resources, our money, our funding should go towards that. I think that is a key and very specific demand. Uh, people in the Black Lives Matter movement have been asking for that. Indigenous community leaders have been asking for it. But we need the right response. If someone is going through healthcare crises, they need a healthcare response. I think that's vital. And then uh, the justice system, there's clearly a system that incarcerates indigenous people disproportionately, and that has to change. We have to look at different sentencing. We have to look at whether it's the right thing to do to put people in jail. Uh, one of the things that we've been talking about is if someone's got a personal amount, they're not a dealer, they're not dealing drugs, they're just using for their own personal use, a simple possession it's often called. You know, does it make sense to put that person through the criminal justice system, arrest them, bring them before the judge, have them then serve sentence in, a, in a, a prison? Does that make sense? Or does that person actually need some support and help to fight their addiction or to deal with the poverty or to deal with the mental health? I think we need a different approach that's not putting people in jail, particularly uh, 
uh, people that that actually need help that that would be better off as a community. Uh, people would be safer. They would be healthier if they got the help they needed instead of just a blanket approach of putting people through the criminal justice system, which doesn't actually make anyone healthier or safer. Yeah, we've always said there's a high cost to keeping or maintaining the status quo. There's high cost to keeping First Nations men and women in jail and in prison. So there's got to be some strategic alternatives. You know, uh, we don't say a restorative justice system, but a transformative justice system. And uh, that's got to be coupled with, yeah, looking at uh, uh, doing away with mandatory minimums, but you got to support housing and education and detox centers and drug rehabilitation, all that, the supports. And uh, that's something that has to be looked at for sure going forward. What are the things we always talk about when we talk about the justice system and policing? Like there's been, I always said, there's so many studies that have been done. Like you look at them all across Canada, like the Viennes Commission in in Quebec and the Stonechild Inquiry in Saskatchewan, the Manitoba Justice Inquiry, you know, when J.J. Harper was shot and um, Helen Betty Osborne, you know, she was murdered up in the Paw and the Opal Inquiry in B.C. Like all those were provincial studies. Um, it's almost like, why can't people just dust off the recommendations and start implementing? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the evidence is so clear. And and the reports you cited, but also community wisdom. Like, we know that communities themselves see this all the time, whether we're talking about leadership in Indigenous communities on reserve or we're talking about leaders in communities across this country. They see up front that the current approach is not working. And the approach moving forward has to be one that's different. It's got to be about providing all the opportunities for people to succeed. And that means good quality housing. It means good quality jobs. It means access to education. It means access to health care and health supports and rehabilitation. Uh, there, is a, there is a toll and a cost, as you mentioned, of the current approach. And it means people are needlessly languishing in prison. It means we are not getting the maximum potential out of every person who can contribute. And it costs money to do so. Putting people in jail costs lots, lots of money. And, and there are better ways to, for us to spend our resources. You know, of course, there's always going to be some cases that, that have to go through the criminal justice system. But if you look at the cases, and, and I remember this as a, as a defense lawyer, there are so many examples you know, of kids that are in the criminal justice system that it is not the right thing, that it's not making anyone's life better off. It's not making the community safer. It's not helping that kid out. There's so many things we can do. We can apply that to, to so many levels. But... We've got to start implementing things. Lots of reports around how to prevent violence all go back to not more police on the ground, not more boots on the ground, but uh, better access to community centers, after school programs that talk about just having access to school, period. Talk about access to a future, a, a hopeful future that you can see yourself in a job that's going to help provide for a family. That those things are actually far more useful in, in, in giving someone a, a chance at a good life rather than hiring a massive number of police. I mean, there's the approach that we've got to change. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to this United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And in Canada now, uh, they're building on this liberal government, this minority liberal government, is building on the good work of Romeo Saganash and his private members bill, Bill C-262, uh, which failed in the due to Senate, conservative senators wrangling it, and it died. And now this liberal government has introduced Bill C-15, um, a, a law to enact and get uh, things in the UN Declaration to give it legal effect in Canada, a simple way to put it, but um, it's, it's working its way now through Parliament. Um, again, minimum standards, human rights for First Nations people, Indigenous peoples. Um, do you think it will achieve 
those two very important words by the end of June, royal assent. And what do you think about this bill and why is it so important for Indigenous peoples uh, and for reconciliation in Canada? It has the opportunity to transform. And you mentioned transformative change when it comes to the justice system and and transformative when it comes to an individual as opposed to just re- restorative justice. What is transformative justice? This is an example of, of something that really could transform our approach that has been one between Indigenous people and, and the Crown or between Indigenous people in Canada that has been very paternalistic, very top-down. It has been very much uh, one-directional as opposed to uh, a partnership, working together as uh, two people paddling in the same direction. And and that is the opportunity this provides. This is an opportunity to lay a legal framework for cooperation, for respect, for human rights, for dignity, really basic things, but it lays a really powerful foundation. And I think that's that in and of itself is vitally important. We think that there's always things that we can improve and make better, but this is a, this is a step in the right direction because this is, and, and a bold one too, not just a, not just saying the words, if we got this passed, I think it would make a, a significant difference. And so my my challenge is uh, we've got 24 MPs. Uh, I'm the leader, and I commit that we want this passed. We believe this is the right thing to do. Uh, BC was able to pass it, and it is shown to be uh, a pretty powerful tool towards real fairness and justice for Indigenous people. I want to see it passed, and I'm I'm calling the Liberals on this one. If it's a priority, we're here. I'm ready. Let's chat, and let's make it happen. Yeah, that's our fear, and we want to get it done as well. I've always said it's a, it's. A, I don't jump up and down as national chief until we hear those words, royal assent. It's been introduced for first reading, but okay, it's a so long what? way still. It, yeah. It's got. It's a long ways to go, and uh, uh, you know, like within um, Bill C fifteen, we've talked about how it's important for laws, and you know, there's a law and policy review for Canada's uh, laws and policies to get in line. You know, there talks about a national action plan. Um, the repudiation of, of doctrines of superiority, you know, doctrine of discovery, doctrine of Terranelius, you know, and so um, we we do want to see it move, and and we'll we'll be looking for you and your leadership and your your twenty four MPs to to help push the Liberals to to get this done sooner than later, no question. So you can count on us, absolutely. There is one clause in there, and uh, and I'll talk about it here um, on the podcast because it's uh, uh, something that everybody talks about. You know, and uh, it's called free prior informed consent. And you've got six provinces right now trying to lobby against the passing of Bill C-15 to slow it down. And they're using different arguments, constitutional arguments or lack of consultation and consent. But yet you have British Columbia as one government, provincial government, that have already passed it, you know, Bill 41. And so uh, I've said it this way that Free prior informed consent means involving the rights and title holders sooner than later on any major project. So you'll avoid roadblocks and blockades. You'll avoid legal challenges. That's the simplest way to do it. Joint decision making. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that, that's the way to frame it. What you've just done, National Chief, is to look at this as an opportunity. It's not a, a, an obstacle. In fact, it's an obstacle when you don't do things the right way. It's an obstacle when you trample the rights of Indigenous people because you got court challenges, rightly so. People then are upset and can challenge it using their, their civic rights to protest. Uh, so not doing it the right way is the barrier, really. If you don't do things appropriately in respect, then the project is not going to go far. And and in this time, people want, even if you're, if you're in the business side of things, you want to have 
predictability. You want to know, make an investment and things will go ahead. Well, if you don't follow uh, the rights and principles of, of the first people of this land and respecting the first people of this land, then the projects will not move ahead. They'll have uncertainty and, and they will have the uncertainty because there will be legitimate challenges uh, on all fronts, whether it's in court or uh, people exercising their democratic rights. So the alternative is, well, let's build a framework where we can actually get projects to move ahead because they're done out of respect. They work together with communities. They are our partners, like we said before, as opposed to being told what to do. I think this is an opportunity to get more projects done that are better for Canadians, that create more opportunities for work and good jobs and shared prosperity. I think this is a positive way to look at it. And it is, in fact, based on the experience when other governments we've seen tried to ram through projects, they have not succeeded. They've been challenged and defeated in courts. And that's not good. Um, we want to see or that's not a good way to do things to rely on the court system to be the only way to get justice. It should be government's work in partnership with everyone uh, with the outcome and the goal being let's let's make the best decisions for everybody. And and that's what this is about. All right. You know, it's um, always speculation in terms of when's the next federal government election going to happen, spring election, fall election. And it's going to happen sometime in this year, no question. Part of my job as national chief, I've said, is to influence all parties in terms of their election platforms. And I've said this before um, to First Nations people that uh, it's important to vote, uh, but make an informed decision. Review and analyze all the party platforms. What's in there, you know, in terms of uh, First Nations priorities, you know, to get people motivated and excited to, yes, I'm going to vote for this party because they're doing A, B, C, D, and E, all those things. So for the New Democratic Party of Canada, can you give uh, our listeners a little bit of a glimpse uh, into the party platform, um, you know, the thinking that might be starting to percolate within your party ranks, you know, with your policy advisors, and uh, what's it going to look like uh, to get people motivated? Absolutely. Well, first I want to say, though, uh, I'm not taking the, the election for granted because I've said really clearly we are not going to give Justin Trudeau the election he's looking for. Uh, I believe right now the focus has got to be on getting everyone vaccinated. If the goal is to get all Canadians vaccinated by September, everyone in this country, our population is pushing close to 38 million. That's a pretty colossal task to do. And to do that, it's going to take a really significant and special effort. So we think the only priority right now should be on getting everyone vaccinated with the threat of the variant, with the threat of the spread. So that's going to be our focus. And, and I continue to challenge Justin Trudeau to commit that he will not call one while we are fighting this pandemic. So that's that's one piece. But on the, on what people can expect from us, uh, a lot of the things that we've already signaled, we, we firmly believe in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So if the Liberals delay on this, you can count on New Democrats to be champions. It was our NDP MP, Romeo Saganash, who led the charge, something we believe is near and dear to me. And to all of our colleagues. So you can count on us for that. When it comes to the things that most impact uh, communities that are that have been faced with injustice, like Indigenous communities, yeah, housing is, is the, something that, that I hear everywhere I go. Any community I go to, uh, especially if I go to First Nations communities, they talk about the, the crisis of housing. So we are committed to building homes. We've got to build places for people to live that are quality and dignified. It can be done. It's a great way to invest in recovery. It creates jobs and opportunities. So investing massively in housing, you can count on us. 
I think one of the biggest questions, uh, National Chief, is also a very simple question. It's the question of water. And the with the AG's report, that makes it clear that it, the Liberal government had no intention of actually cleaning water. They, they engaged in Band-Aid solutions. They didn't actually commit enough resources. It looks pretty clear that they were more interested in chasing a headline and being able to say that they fixed the community. But if a Band-Aid solution is only going to fall off a year later, that's not really helping anyone out. That's just making it look good for a short term, but it's not actually a long-term solution. So I, I commit in the 21st, in the, in the year 2021, with uh, Canada being a G7 nation, one of the world's largest economies, I do not accept that we cannot immediately ensure that every single person in our, in our country, and particularly the first people of this land, have access to clean drinking water. I just don't buy the excuse. I think it can be done. I know it can be done. And I'm committed to making that happen. Uh, those are very specific to the community. But I have to, if we think broader, a lot of the things that we've already been talking about, making sure we've got a healthcare system that covers people head to toe, making sure that there's dignity and respect in the healthcare system and in policing, these are all things that are going to disproportionately help those who've been most impacted. So our plan to make sure medication coverage is accessible for everyone, our plan for dental care, uh, our plan for a better healthcare system and better long-term care are, are very specifically going to help the people that have been hardest hit uh, by the pandemic and in general by the injustice of, 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 uh, of Canada's history. So uh, those are some of the things that people can look forward to and we'll have a full plan out before the election. Well, that's, uh, we're going to be starting to work just so uh, our listeners and you know as well that from the AFN, each of the last federal elections, we had some policy documents uh, that we used that, that we're developing to influence the uh, platforms. First one back in 2014-15 was closing the gap document. And then this last one was honoring promises document. So our Assembly of First Nations is working on another document to, to help guide and influence the party platforms because uh, everything that you talked about, you know, um, um, the uh, UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, the water, like we still have 57 boil water advisories, so that's targeted. Housing is always a big issue on First Nations. Housing and jobs, jobs yeah. and housing, always a For big, sure they, they tie together in all the First Nations communities. And then things like uh, treaty implementation, you know, uh, f- according to the spirit and intent. Um, Section 35 is a full box of rights with the inherent right to self-government in there and, and processes and policies to move beyond the Indian Act. Um, infrastructure uh, is a big one. And um, like because of access to, to broadband right. and, and uh, high-speed internet and all Absolutely. these things come into play. Um, mental health. And I'm just going off my list. This is what it's going to be um, in, in our document as well. So like mental health, we have five to seven times national youth suicide uh, statistics, you know, for First Nations men and women. So dealing with mental health issues, policing as essential service, um, all of that. And, and uh, full implementation of C-91, the language bill, Indigenous language bill, and full implementation of C-92, the child welfare bill. So all these things we say... Um, to, to, to get excited, to get First Nations people um, uh, excited enough to get up to vote for a particular party, these things need to be reflected in their party platforms. So, uh, in fact, uh, if we can mobilize and get First Nations people out to vote, we can influence a lot of federal ridings. And, and important, important that, that uh, this is a voice that needs to be heard, it needs to be reflected. The, the, the demands uh, of, of government have to be made 
because uh, and the way to do that is to engage, is to is to be involved. And and I encourage everybody get out and vote. It's so important. It's so important because it's making sure your voice is heard. Um, either way, you can kind of meet a fight and and raise your concerns. But it is so mm-hmm. important to be able to use that that power to vote. One of the things, uh, Jagmeet, uh, that's such a huge issue, uh, not only in Canada, but globally. And we know we're feeling the the impacts of of COVID-19 in this pandemic. Uh, But a lot of our elders have said, no some grandson, um, this is small, uh, what we're experiencing right now because of this pandemic. If we don't get our heads and start developing strategies on how to deal with climate change, that's a big Canada issue. It's a global issue. What are your thoughts on what are some of the uh, programs, policies, legislation, directives, public sector, private sector, as we transition to a clean, green economy? Um, but what are your thoughts on that and how we get our head around uh, the climate crisis that we're all well, facing? Well, the, the climate crisis is, is impacting us right now. So we know it's not something that's in the distant future. People are feeling it right now. And people are feeling it uh, in all the communities. We're seeing you know, massive floods that would never happen in the Ottawa region and in Quebec. We're seeing uh, extreme heat like never before. I think there's really incredible opportunities in, in fighting the climate crisis. I think it can be a job creator, and, and we know we need to create jobs. One program we really believe in, I think is a, is a strong program, is to look at retrofitting not only do we build new buildings and new structures, we have to build housing that's affordable that people can, can live in. We also need to retrofit existing, and that means making sure they're, they're quality and up to standard, but also it means reducing their emissions, making sure they take less energy to heat, increase the efficiency of homes and buildings is a great way to create jobs because they can't be outsourced. They have to be in those communities where the retrofits happen. It also reduces emissions, and in the scheme of things, the emissions from heating our homes and buildings, the energy used by buildings in general is one of the top three producers of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's it's vital. So we've got an opportunity to build an economy that helps us invest in the type of jobs that will help us create good jobs, but also jobs that will be there in the long term and help us fight the climate crisis. I'm excited about this opportunity. Young people have been really at the forefront. And I also think there are lots of Indigenous teachings and and indigenous leaders that should be at the table when it comes to fighting the climate crisis because they're feeling the impacts on the ground whether it comes to the way of life that depends on living off the ground uh, seeing the impacts directly on populations of of animals that are deeply connected to an indigenous way of life and seeing Mm. the direct impact of climate change on their way of life these are vital uh, roles that indigenous leaders can play in helping us shape the solutions and outlining the problems. I totally agree with that because we, like you said earlier, we're all right. one, we're all connected. And uh, we all need clean air to breathe mm-hmm. and clean water to drink. And uh, so we're all, we all have to be part of that. So getting our head around uh, the whole climate crisis, climate catastrophe, however you want to frame it, is, is a Absolutely. big issue going forward. And, and getting our elders' knowledge, uh, our elders' traditional knowledge incorporated into some of the policy and, and uh, drafting tables so they have impact uh, locally, regionally, nationally, and even internationally mm-hmm. on this is going to be key. All right, uh, Jagmeet, uh, let's talk about hope and what, what gives you hope for the future? Uh, uh, as Mr. Jagmeet saying, what gives you Our hope? Our youth, young people give me hope. 
when you go anywhere across this country, whether you're going Atlanta, Canada, prairies, you go to uh, anywhere across this country, west coast, east coast, north or south, when you speak to young people and see how much they care, they, you know, I've met with young kids who have never met an indigenous uh, person or have never gone to an indigenous reserve or a First Nations reserve, and they care. They say, why is it in our country that we, they don't have clean drinking water? When I see young kids raise this, who have never been exposed to it directly, but just care because they've got compassion, it's, it reminds me that there is so much potential that for us to, to make a difference. When I see people, uh, you know, thousands of young people take to the streets and say, we want to see changes to protect our environment, uh, I'm inspired by that. And, and it gives me a lot of hope. I think young people are a big part of our hope, but I think people in general, if you speak to most people, most Canadians, most human beings, they care about their neighbors, they care about the people around them, and we sometimes hear the negative amplified, the people who are hateful and racist, and, and that message gets amplified, and it's important for us to acknowledge it exists. I don't want to ignore it by any means. But there are so many people that just care, and and those people give me the energy to keep moving because I know there are people out there that want to see us do better, they want to see more justice and fairness for all, and believe that an economy that works is one that works for everyone, believe in the idea of shared prosperity, and believe in, in a, this concept of lifting each other up. So I often think about what my mom taught me, a phrase that I rely on. It's called chardikala. And no matter how sad my mom is, no matter how down she is, or how many challenges she's faced, if you ask her how she's doing, she always says chardikala. And the phrase means rising spirits. But it's not just rising spirits which I thought was because you're feeling like you're happy one day. It's rising spirits in the face of adversity, almost like a defiant optimism, like you're defying the odds and, and building this resilient sense of we can take it on. So I tap into that. I meditate on that. I think about this idea of rising spirits in the face of hopeless odds. Uh, but, you know, sometimes when I think about it, the odds aren't so hopeless. There are actually a lot of opportunities and, and, and Jardigal is still important. But there's a lot of things that I think we can build on. And I'm excited about how we can make this world a better place. That's awesome. Rising spirits in the face of hopeless odds. That's almost, it ties in with the name of our podcast, Akamema. Oh, yeah, it does. Don't give up. That's right. Keep perseverance, persistence, yes. never give up. So that's right. a really good connection. Mr. Jagmeet Singh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Congratulations on the podcast. And, and I hope it does. Uh, great success like everything you've done in your, in your career. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemic podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. <laughs>